0: This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway and Joni Erickson Tada's new book, Songs of Suffering, 25 Hymns and Devotions for Weary Souls. As an advocate for individuals with disabilities, Joni has inspired people around the world with her story of faith in the midst of suffering. This beautifully designed book includes 25 hymns with accompanying devotions and photography to guide you through your own difficult seasons with heartfelt praise to God. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29, with an invitation to their 2024 NEXT Conference, happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The NEXT Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Nancy Guthrie, originally delivered at TGC's 2022 Women's Conference.
1: It was probably about 10 or 15 years ago, I was asked to help teach a study of Revelation at my church, and I began looking for a way to say no. Can some of you relate to that a little, maybe? Uh, but I thought, you know, maybe before I said, say no, I should read the book. And so I started reading Revelation, I got to the third verse, and here was this promise, blessed are those who read this prophecy, those who hear and keep what is written in it. And I just thought to myself, well, is there any blessing from God about which I would want to look at that and say, mm, don't need that. Uh, I kept reading, and th- that's the way the book ends, with that same promise of blessings for those who hear and keep what is written in this book. So. It emboldened me to dive in, and I hope maybe that promise of blessedness would embolden you to dive into Revelation as as well. When I think about what my fears have been about the book of Revelation, uh, in terms of teaching it, I've had the fear, and honestly, I still gotta have this fear a a bit, and that is a fear of not being able to answer someone's question. So if you thought about teaching it or leading it through a group, that's a very real fear, isn't it? I think we fear controversy, because we know that this book can be, people have very strong opinions about it at times. Um, Just fear of not understanding it, uh, not getting it wrong, I I mean not getting it right, especially if we're the ones up front or leading the discussion. So I'm gonna work our way through uh, four, what I think are the four most common Fears that we have about the Book of Revelation. All right. So, number one, we fear that we're not going to be able to understand it, and if we're teaching it, that we are going to get it wrong. Now, I think there's uh, there's three real challenges to understanding it. Uh, First of all, most of us are unskilled in this genre of apocalyptic literature. We get historical narrative, and we can trace the argument in in an epistle or a letter. But apocalyptic prophecy, that's a little more challenging to us. Secondly, we're unfamiliar with Revelation's allusions. It's Old Testament and some New Testament even allusions, and we'll talk about that. We are intimidated by its symbolism. We're afraid that we're not going to be able to rightly interpret. So I want to work our way through what I think are these three challenges to understanding it. And in terms of being unskilled in this genre, I would say we might be unskilled in this genre, but we can become better skilled in this genre. Uh, Revelation is an epistle. It is a letter. It doesn't just contain seven letters, it is a letter, but it is also prophecy but it's a particular subset of prophecy in the Bible, apocalyptic prophecy. And apocalyptic, you know, when we think about that word, we think about, you know, like descriptions. I always think apocalypse, you know, it's a, when I see that description in a movie or television show, I'm pretty sure I don't wanna watch it, right? Because it's probably something about the end of the world, right? Some big cataclysmic thing. Well, the word apocalyptic really just means uncovered or revealed. When we read this first line of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So it's clearly, it's, it's just what's being revealed. But the thing is, after John wrote the book of Revelation, Uh, That term has come to describe this unique genre of literature that we find in Revelation. We find it in other places of the Bible as well. It's in the second half of Daniel, we'd call that apocalyptic. Uh, Books like uh, Zechariah, we find apocalyptic in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew and Mark. And in apocalyptic literature, we quite often read accounts of dreams. Visionary experiences, journeys to heaven, in which the writers use vivid symbolism to describe what they saw and the message that was often mediated to them by a heavenly or angelic being. And perhaps the most succinct way to define what apocalyptic literature is, is that it describes — ready for this? — it describes earthly events from a heavenly perspective. And so to grow in our ability to understand apocalyptic, we have to reckon with the reality that apocalyptic literature invites us into a spiritual reality beyond what we can see with our human eyes. It plunges us into the world of angels and demons. It gives us insight into present realities going on right now on Earth. It gives us insight into what we can expect in the future as God continues to work out His sovereign plans for the unfolding of history. So secondly, our skill that we need to develop rightly to understand apocalyptic literature is that of identifying Old Testament allusions, which quite often in Revelation are kind of our ticket to guide us into uh, appropriate understanding of what is being communicated to us. You see, the, the book of Revelation doesn't quote the Old Testament very much, actually, but it alludes to the Old Testament probably more than any other New Testament book. What's the difference? You're not going to see the parts that it, uh, from the Old Testament, set off in quotes. Like the prophet so-and-so said this, like you see in the Gospels and some other books. Instead, it's just part of the text and you have to have eyes to see it. Or I guess what you really need is a rigorous Old Testament knowledge to see it. Uh, You'll be reading along and you'll hear something and you think, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. This is where the cross-references, do you have a Bible with good cross-references? I hope you do. A Bible with good cross-references. You'll be reading along, you'll hear something kind of familiar. And so your job at that point is to go back to the Old Testament passage that John is alluding to in Revelation, and look at the context in which that allusion comes from. And you're going to find oftentimes that really takes away some of the mystery of, of trying to understand it. It's going to guide you into a reliable understanding of what he's communicating. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. So, for example, in Revelation one 7, John writes, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So, as you read that, you think, okay, that sounds kind of familiar. And what you discover is actually in that one sentence, he has combined a phrase from Daniel 7.13, that, uh, and a a phrase from Zechariah 12.10. So you go back to Daniel 7, you look at the context, and you recognize this, he is coming with the clouds. It seems to be um, describing the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, where he receives a kingdom. You look at Zechariah, And it's speaking of those who pierced him, wailing on account of him. And it seems to be more about his second coming. And so, the events of redemptive history from ascension to his present reign in heaven, all the way to his coming judgment and salvation, coming and judgment and salvation, they all seem to be in mind here. And so John uses these words from Zechariah and from Daniel to turn our gaze toward the anticipation of the day when Jesus, the king, is going to come again to this earth in power and glory. Let me give you another example. Revelation 2.20, in his letter to Thyatira, Jesus says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols." So calling her Jezebel, probably wasn't her real name, okay, Jezebel, it's, we're, we're, we, think, we should immediately think, okay, where have I heard this name before? So let me go figure out who this was in the Old Testament, and we go back to 1 Kings, And we realize that she was the one who urged the Israelites to worship Baal and Ashtaroth alongside worship of the one true God, and that that worship also involved sexual liaisons at pagan shrines. So, to get the connection, you've got to be willing to go back to the Old Testament uh, passage that John is alluding to in what you read in Revelation. And so, with a willingness to engage with our whole Bibles, we can connect Revelation to the Old Testament allusions and it greatly adds to our understanding. So how about this third issue of understanding, uh, Revelation's symbolism. Revelation does have a lot of symbols, and so is it possible to come to relative certainty that we are rightly interpreting Revelation's symbols? Well, I think maybe we can't always be dogmatic about our interpretation of them, but I do think that we can come to relative certainty for most of them. And the truth is, even though we think about Revelation being so heavily symbolic, and it is, there's actually a lot of symbolism throughout the whole of the Bible that hasn't necessarily intimidated us all that much. For example, and I I love it, John Piper read this passage in his message this morning where he read Exodus 19, 4, where God says to Israel, I bore you on on eagle's wings. And when he says that, we don't think, okay, he flew the Israelites out of Egypt on the wings of literal eagles, do we? No. We recognize that. This symbol of an eagle communicates something about the speed and the strength of his rescue. Similarly, Jesus uses a lot of symbols to talk about himself. Think about the book of John, all of those things he calls himself. He says that he is a good shepherd. He says that he is the bread of life, that he is the vine. He's using a symbol to communicate some of the reality of who he is here. And so similarly, um, perhaps more pervasively, John uses symbols to communicate in Revelation. And he uses them quite often to communicate some complex realities. So for example, when he talks about Babylon. Babylon. We know he's not talking about specifically the historic city of Babylon, but he uses Babylon as a symbol of worldly idolatry and immorality. By calling the city of man Babylon, it carries, it like grabs up a lot of meaning in that one word based on what we know about the history of Babylon and, uh, and then communicates that Uh, Babylon throughout biblical history is a symbol of human ingenuity and independence from God. Um, Another symbol he he uses when he talks about the sea. Throughout the Bible, the sea is a symbol of chaos and the threat of evil. So when we get to the end of of Revelation and we read that there is no more sea, the beach lovers in this room do not have to shed a bunch of tears, okay? There's no more seed. That's always been a symbol for the source of chaos and evil. And so really, he's using that as a symbol to give us this good news that evil will have been done away with for good, and we won't have to fear that anymore. Um, Also in Revelation, you'll, you'll know this, colors and numbers quite often have symbolic meaning. Now, sometimes uh, the meaning of Revelation's symbols is plain. Sometimes it's even stated explicitly, and I think that helps us a lot if we wonder whether or not we should try to interpret some of its other symbols symbolically. For example, we're told that lampstands, in, in Revelation 120, he's already talked about lampstands, and then he tells us explicitly lampstands are the what? Churches, exactly. Uh, white linen. He t- it tells us explicitly in chapter nineteen eight that the white linen represents the um, the righteous acts of the saints, or in chapter twenty two he tells us uh, exactly who the ancient serpent is. He says the ancient serpent is the devil. So sometimes it actually tells us explicitly. Of course, then other times it's, it's a little bit more challenging. Now, some interpreters of Revelation will suggest that if we don't read every image and take every image in Revelation as literally as possible, then we're not taking the Bible seriously. But I think that an important part of taking the Bible seriously is recognizing and interpreting each part of the Bible in the literary genre used by the human author as well as inspired by the divine author. So, to interpret symbols symbolically is not spiritualizing the text. It's rightly interpreting the text. For example, when we read about the lamb, standing as though it has been slain, don't we instinctively — this is this is one of the symbols that maybe is more familiar to us, right? And so, we instinctively know that John is using symbolism to communicate something to us about the crucified Christ. When he speaks about the Lamb and God being seated on a throne, we know he's communicating Uh, something to us about the sovereignty of God over the universe and over history. When he speaks of the beast, he's communicating something about the nature and intentions of Rome in his day and every government since then, every human power since then that has set itself against God and his people. When he describes a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. He's, saying, he's communicating something, something to us about the terrifying power of, uh, of Satan. You see, by using symbols, by just this one word, he's communicating a whole reality about these things. So our first step in rightly interpreting various symbols is going to be to explore wherever we have seen that symbol earlier in the Bible. You know, for many people, the first step in a symbol is to look up, out, or maybe in the newspaper or on the news. Actually the first step should be to look back into the Old Testament, because that significantly informs our understanding. So for example, we read about plenty of sacrificial lambs throughout the Old Testament. And so that gives us insight into what he means when he says a lamb who looks as if he has been slain. We actually read about beasts in the book of Daniel. And these beasts in the book of Daniel represent worldly kingdoms. And so that helps us understand what John might mean when he talks about this beast in Revelation. We read about armies sweeping in to attack Israel, and they're described as locusts in the book of Joel. And so that helps us understand when we see locusts, show up in Revelation, we're probably reading something about a spiritual attack of an army of demons in the book of Revelation. Now if you have some fear in regard to understanding Revelation, here's the most important thing I want you to hear under this point. Revelation wasn't written for scholars. It was written for ordinary believers living in the first century with the expectation that they could understand its very clear message. And this means that as we invest ourselves in understanding this message, um, and what it meant for the original readers. It's gonna take us a long way in understanding what its implications are for us today. Here's the thing, you and I are able to understand Revelation's all-important central message. Here's what I've come to think as I've studied the book of Revelation, that the greater challenge of this book is opening myself up to the adjustments in my life that this book calls for. That that's much harder than actually understanding what it's calling for. But I would say this greatest challenge of opening up our lives underneath it is also what offers the greatest blessing. So you don't have to be afraid that you can understand the book of Revelation. You can understand its central message, and in fact, its central message is essential for living our lives in this world as we wait for His kingdom to come. And here's what the central, here's my articulation of what I think the central message of the book of Revelation is. I would say it this way, Revelation is a call to patient endurance of suffering for our allegiance to Christ and to refuse to compromise with the world as we wait For the king to come and usher in his kingdom in all of its glorious fullness. Can, can you under, can we understand its call to refuse to fall away or to refuse to drift away from Christ? Can we? Yes, we can. Can we understand its call to refuse to compromise with the world as we wait for uh, His return? Yes, we can. So the challenge of Revelation is not so much understanding it, but to gird ourselves for the endurance that it calls for. To figure out what it's gonna mean for us to refuse to compromise. The challenge is not so much about figuring out what horses and locusts and blood moons mean. It really isn't. All right. Number two, so if my first one was, we're afraid we can't understand it, number two, we fear the controversy that surrounds this book and how to interpret it. And I gotta tell you, it's true, it's true. There is a lot of controversy that surrounds interpreting the book of Revelation, no way around it. There are different camps who have different ways of approaching the book. In fact, we find that if we kind of survey teachers that we know and respect, that they might actually interpret it differently. In fact, if we surveyed the um, Gospel Coalition council members, in terms of some of their views and understandings of Revelation, there would be some differences among them. And then certainly, we have friends and family that we know interpret things differently from us, and as I said, many people have very strong opinions about this. I think one important thing as we anticipate maybe some controversy, as if we're thinking about leading or being a part of a, a study of the book of Revelation is that we really need to understand how many peoples, and maybe even our own understanding of what the Bible presents to us about the unfolding of redemptive history, how some of those ideas have been shaped. Now, if you are of my generation, which some of you are, I think, but um, if you're of my generation, then perhaps like me, your youth years were filled with many showings of the film A Thief in the Night. Can I see some hands? All right, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And so, for some of you who are younger than I am, I'll just tell you, here's the plot line. Um, There's this girl named Patty, and she wakes up, and to a radio broadcasting and, and it's announced that millions of people around the world have disappeared and the the radio announcer suggests this the rapture of the church may have happened she finds her husband has disappeared and the United Nations sets up an emergency government system and declares that anyone who doesn't receive the mark of the beast uh, is going to be arrested so, this way of understanding what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ, in my, for most of my life, it was not presented to me as one way to understand what the Bible presents. It was really presented to me as the only way. The only faithful way. For most of my life, I continued, I, I uh, perceived this view to be the way that people who take the Bible seriously understand how the future will unfold, and that anyone who holds some other kind of view is liberal or just doesn't take the the Bible's teaching seriously. So it was presented this way, I I can also remember, um, besides A Thief in the Night, there was a huge selling book called The Late Great Planet Earth which is still on the bookshelf at my parents' house. And then in the 1990s, the Left Behind book series was, lo- was, was launched. Uh, I, I think there are about 65 million copies of that series of books that have been sold. Um, stories have power. Stories have a lot of power to shape our understanding of things. And these stories have shaped many of our understandings and many other people's understanding. The other thing that has shaped our understanding is that this view of redemptive history has been dominant in most Christian media. Christian radio. Uh, Christian publishing, this is the view that has been dominated. And so, we just need to understand as we go on, maybe you didn't grow up with it, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Well then, maybe you are gonna need to know that a little, at least a little bit about that. Um, because this view has so shaped so many of us. Um, for for me it wasn't until, I, 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 I tried to figure it out, I think it was about 2006, I was listening to a message. And he was talking about Matthew twenty four, and it's about that scene in Matthew twenty four where it says like two people are working at the mill and one disappears. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And then there's another scene, somebody disappears, and and um, and as I heard this message, he he said he he emphasized. How that little story begins when it says, and, and we heard Melissa say this in her message the other night, uh, it will be as in the day uh, days of Noah, and it continues on. It tells it says they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be? And then it talks about you know two or there one. The four. So the the speaker pointed out that the key reference that helps us what's under what understand what's happening in this picture. We're meant to be looking at what's happening in light of what happened in the days of Noah. So if you think about what happened in the days of Noah, who was swept away and who was left behind? So when you look at it, you realize, oh, left behind, that's what I want to be. I want to be left behind, (laughs) right? Preserved in the ark, like Noah. And so, maybe this passage in Matthew isn't about uh, those who are joined to Christ being snatched away from the earth, but perhaps it's about those who are outside of Christ being swept away in the judgment of God while those who are in Christ are left behind. Around that same time, I also heard or read something I had never seen before in regard to 1 Thessalonians 4 which says that the Lord himself will descend, the dead in Christ will rise, then all who are alive, who are left, left, uh, behind, it doesn't say behind, I'm just adding that for, you know, effect. All who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, I had always heard this taught as believers being uh, taken away from earth. But you see, while that Matthew passage requires that we consider what we read about in in reference to the days of Noah. This passage, for proper interpretation, requires that we consider the setting of ancient cities like Thessalonica that Paul was writing to. And when a king or dignitary came to the city, the inhabitants of the city would go out to greet or welcome this honored guest with great fanfare and celebration, and then accompany them back into the city. So what we have pictured here is the Lord returning to earth. It says that all who have died in Christ will be with him, and that those who are s- still alive are being caught up — or this is where we get the word rapture, it's that word caught, caught up — to meet the Lord as king. He comes to establish his kingdom on earth. The question is, when we go out to meet him, is he taking us somewhere further away, or are we ushering him in to establish his kingdom here? I think that's what this is saying, that he's coming back. He's giving us resurrected bodies to live with him forever on a resurrected, renewed earth. And we read in this passage, and so we will always be with the Lord. It seems to fit to me. but I have to say, potential conflict or disagreement about these things, it isn't a reason to avoid Revelation. Did you notice neither of the passages I was reading to you was from Revelation? But potential um, conflict or disagreement isn't a reason to avoid Revelation, it's a reason to study Revelation! My experience is that as we work our way through the text, taking in what it does clearly reveal about what we can expect in this time in between the ascension of Jesus at the right hand of God through the period of time we're living in now until the return of Jesus, I'm finding that it has the power to focus our attention on what is clearly revealed and away from what is sometimes imposed on the Scriptures. I'm finding it puts some of the unusual aspects and emphasis of the teaching of popular prophecy teachers into perspective so that what God has apocalypsed or uncovered or revealed to us actually becomes clearer. And what maybe some other voices might have imposed on the text or the timeline, we might discover that it becomes less credible or less compelling. So, what are we going to do with this fear of controversy that surrounds the book of Revelation? Number one, focus on the text. It is your salvation from controversy as you focus on what is there in the text and discuss it and give it authority. Uh, Listen first for the meaning for the original. Recipients. So, everywhere you read in Revelation, ask yourself, what would this have meant to those people in the first century in those seven churches who first received this letter? Because it cannot mean something radically different for us today than it would have meant for them. First step, get clear on what it would have meant for them, and that's gonna guide you into right understanding of what it's gonna mean for us today. Uh, Detect the emphasis. And by that, not all the periphery stuff. Man, can it be easy to get lost in the details of the colors and the numbers and the creatures and everything in Revelations, right? But detect the emphasis, not the periphery, rather than obsess about the details. A step you're gonna have to take is to determine what you think the structure of the book is. And I don't have time to talk a long way through that. Um, I hope some of you have discovered this blessed podcast we started a few weeks ago. Have some of you discovered this, the blessed podcast? Yeah, like it? So it's, it's gonna be 10 episodes. I had conversations with fabulous Uh, scholars about Revelation. It will really be helpful to you. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. But listen to my conversation with Vern Poitras, especially on this um, aspect of the structure of the book. And by that, I mean, you've got to decide, are we reading a chronological account that as we go along in the book, what we read in the next chapter is something that's happening after the chapter we just read? Or, are we getting a sense that throughout the book, uh, it's almost like John has picked up the camera from this scene, and now he's gonna move the camera over here, and we're gonna see the same set of events from another angle with a different emphasis. That's a decision you're gonna have to make as you go along. And then finally, see all the facets of the Gospel in the book, not just the return of Christ. Huge misconception that Revelation is all about the return of Christ, it is, it is, but actually What's delightful as you work your way through the book of Revelation is you see the whole, every facet of the Gospel. You're gonna see His incarnation, and you're gonna see His righteous life, and you're gonna see His sacrificial death, and His glorious resurrection, and His ascension to the right hand of God, His present reign in heaven, all the way to His return and establishing the new heavens and the new earth. So look for all of those. Revelation is not primarily about the future. It's written to fortify believers in the first century and every century since then to live out bold allegiance to Christ as we wait for his kingdom to come in all of its glorious fullness. I'm skipping ahead now because my time is going so fast. Let me give you these few little tips out here. Learn from leaders you respect, but don't slavishly follow them. In terms of the controversy, challenge conversation partners to support their views from the text, not from someone else's teaching or some other book. Explore the assumptions underneath their opinions. What do I mean? Assumptions like war in Revelation being a literal war between geopolitical entities. Assumptions like believers will never have to face terrible... Persecution, assumptions that um, material in revelation is presented chronologically. Don't allow anyone to dogmatically impose a chart or timeline on the present and future of redemptive history, I would say, other than what is revealed in the Apostles' Creed. You can't go wrong. And then, allow me to indulge myself here. just. Recognize that a lot of writers and teachers make a lot of money selling books and videos about the latest thing in the news that demonstrates Jesus is about to return that makes everybody feel afraid. There's a lot of money in that, okay? I don't, I don't mean for you to become cynical, but I do want you to use wisdom. Use wisdom and be appropriately skeptical. You don't have to have charts to study Revelation. You don't have to have a bunch of discussions about signs in the news that Jesus is about to return. You don't have to be dogmatic about how the return of Christ and the ushering in of His kingdom and the defeat of evil is going to take place. And you don't have to be afraid of your study of Revelation becoming a mishmash of things that people have heard prophecy teachers teach, not if you stick to the text and focus on the central message that the uh, f- the central message for the original readers and then draw the message for us from that number 3 of my 4 we fear the suffering and persecution revelation tells us to expect Rev- but actually revelation rather than generating fear it was really intended to and actually i think has the power to generate courage for boldness, to provide assurance of ultimate protection, to set before us these beautiful promises of blessedness that are going to outlast and surpass any suffering that we're ever going to experience in this life. Although let's face it, we are really kind of oriented toward A life of comfort and ease. We think that's what being blessed is. A Life filled with material things, but Revelation is gonna show us that's not what true blessedness about. Blessedness, according to Revelation, is enjoyed by those who are prepared for and eager for Christ's return. It's reserved for those who are living out of the righteousness that has been imparted to them by Christ and now is working out through their lives by the Holy Spirit. Um, Revelation is a call to patient endurance of suffering for our bold allegiance to Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a lot in Revelation about persecution, and honestly, it, it can be troubling. When I think about the first readers of this letter, some of whom had had friends and family members put to death for their allegiance to Jesus Christ, I can't help but wonder how it must have hit them. When you get to this part in Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord — we know you're sovereign over all of this, God, all right — O sovereign Lord, holy and true, we know you'll do what's right. How long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" And it says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when I read that, I'm like, what? I mean, is that not countercultural, even counter-Christian culture? Here's the sov- Lord, you're the sovereign over this, and instead of acting now to put an end to this slaughter of your people, you're waiting until the full number of martyrs is complete? You see, putting our trust in a sovereign God over something like the persecution of his people, I think it presents a real test for us, doesn't it? And maybe it's a test we need. What enables us to trust Him is that here in Revelation, we're shown over and over again that suffering, our suffering for Christ will not be the end of the story. Instead, our suffering is going to give way to great glory. Nothing can happen to us outside of the Lamb's grip on His sovereign plans. Our suffering will not be meaningless, it will not go unnoticed, it will not last forever, but in fact, Revelation says it will be rewarded into all eternity. If you're, if you're afraid of the suffering or persecution aspect of Revelation, then instead soak up — as you go along in Revelation — soak up all of the goodness that's presented to those who suffer for Him. It begins with saying, grace and peace. It's giving you grace and peace, the grace you need, the peace you'll need for the conflict. Over and over again, you see, Christ among the lampstands who are his churches were assured of the presence of Jesus here with us in the midst of the suffering. And the message over and over again is the promise of protection for those who are joined to Christ in the midst of the judgment that's gonna fall on the rest of the earth. He'll be protected. He'll be with you. He'll give you the grace and peace you you need. Defeat is gonna, what is actually gonna turn out to be victory. And what seems like ultimate loss is actually gonna result in eternal blessing. Finally, number four, we fear the judgment, blood, and wrath of Revelation. Yep, there's a lot of blood in this book. Um, there is the blood of those who reject Christ, but you know what? The focus is much more on the blood of the Lamb and what it has accomplished. It's the Lamb's Book of Life that we read about in this book that lists out all those who have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Yes, there is judgment, but the judgment for so much of the book inherent in the judgment is a warning so that all who read this book can flee to the safety and protection found in Christ. Now, yes, there is even a little bit of judgment for believers, but it is judgment in the sense that there is therefore now no condemnation. The judgment faced by believers, when we get to Revelation 20 when the books and the book are opened, we discover that actually in that judgment, everything written in the books about us is going to be confirmation that we were genuinely joined to Christ, not condemnation. And yes, there is wrath, but the wrath is celebrated by the saints throughout Revelation. That's kind of the shocking thing to me. Throughout Revelation, as you read about it over and over again, we hear the saints in heaven celebrating the wrath of God. And when I read that, I was like, what do they know that I don't know? Because that's not my first instinct. When I read about the wrath of God more likely to feel embarrassed about it. I mean, our modern world is all for a God of love, but it really doesn't know what to do with a God of wrath. And so, we need revelation because it encourages us to sing along with those saints in heaven a song that celebrates the wrath of God as a demonstration of His perfect justice and righteousness. You see, Revelation provides us with a response to the question, maybe you've heard it before, the question, why doesn't God do something about all of the evil and suffering in the world? And the answer of Revelation is, be patient. Evil's day of doom is surely coming. In fact, Revelation brings all the storylines of the Bible to a beautiful resolution made possible by the full and final wrath of God being poured out. The curse of sin and death that was dealt with at the cross is eliminated for good. That is what the wrath of God accomplishes. This is what, able, is what enables us to celebrate it rather than be embarrassed by it. You see, when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, we've also come to the end of the Bible, and what we find is a fitting conclusion. That marriage that faltered in Eden is finally consummated in Revelation. the, all of the children of God receive their promised inheritance. People from every nation flow into the city, making it a beautiful multinational community. God dwells in His temple, which now covers the whole of the earth. At the end of, the Re- of Revelation, we see that Jesus. The second Adam will not fail to lead us into a garden that will be even better than Eden, where we will enjoy fellowship with him for all eternity. So don't be afraid of revelation. Enjoy and savor revelation. Allow it to shape your expectations for life and to fortify you for faithfulness as you live in this in-between time, in-between the ascension and the return of Jesus. May it be so. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.